Right, let's get started. Okay, it looks like I'm recording. Well, I hope you are, mate. Otherwise, this will be a rubbish pod, or at least a very one-sided pod with just me talking. Uh, anyway, let's get on with this. So, welcome to episode 21 of Ed and Nick on the Asia-Pacific. Episode 21. Can you believe it? Our first episode under lockdown was episode 15, and we're now up to episode 21 and still in lockdown. So that means what one-third of all our episodes have been produced from our homes, which is... Because it was quite a novelty the first time we did it, and you know now I'm a bit bored of it, and I'd like to go back. Yeah, I hate this, mate. I hate all of it. So, um, should we do feedback from last week's pod quickly, and then we'll come into you hating your life for a couple of minutes? Because that's always interesting to listen to. For yeah, for you. No, it's no, it's not. I was being sarcastic, to be honest. I'm a bit sick of hearing you moan. What? I don't want to do this pod anymore. <laughs> you say that every week. <laughs> Uh, so the main feedback last week was about you sounding a bit like a weirdo. I sound like a weirdo. Well, I, not just your voice. I mean, that does sound weird. Um, no. So uh, Kate, Kate Martin said, uh, this episode definitely paints a dodgy picture of Nikki. You're confused. What do we talk about? It was about? the sex yeah, dolls. No, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Because of your... Oh, uh, yeah. Because you were talking about sex dolls. So Kate also says, on the bright side, Nikki will probably get some very creative secret Santa gifts at Christmas. Yeah, oh, I always like a good gift. Something to look forward to. Sounds like Kate's got a plan. Indeed. Uh, Regan, Bevan, um, she said something about me eating chocolate. Now, this is going to show my age, and I would like to know. It's so long since we recorded a pod, again, that you've forgotten all of the things that we did. You've forgotten all about the sex dolls and the chocolate, haven't you? <laughs> I don't think those two things were discussed in the same context. No, they definitely weren't. There was a point, oh, okay. there was a point when... Uh, you you said a bunch of things and got to the point where you wanted to ask me what I thought. And just as you asked me, I put uh, a piece of chocolate you had in your mouth. Full. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Regan said, Ed eating chocolate during a serious conversation is the biggest mood. Crying, laughing emoji. So my question is, and this is because I'm old. Yeah. Mood. What I've seen a couple of people use this word like this now. What does it mean in that context? Um, I think it's something like you ain't sick. For the listeners at home, Nick just tried to do a gangster hand movement. It's like you're off the rails or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what the word mood means in that context. Um, but I, it's it's something young people say. And given, as the previously discussed, our listenership statistics suggest that young people are listening to this, or some young people are listening to this. We need to we need to work that out. So I don't want you to look it up. Let's just uh, let's throw it out there, and somebody can educate us this week. That's something to look forward to. Um, yeah. But uh, Regan's been listening to our podcast while uh, studying Korean. Um, I don't think we should tell her Korean tutors that. Uh, but uh, it's bringing her some kind of norm, and that's nice. So mood, mood is that like like so like you are mood? Uh, I mean, I don't I don't see that you've really explained it there. No, I mean, I'm trying to figure out if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I haven't still quite understood. Is it a good thing? Well, this is the point. I mean, I don't know. I, d I don't know. You don't know if it's like, oh, like, like, you know, you're... It could, you're... It could be a compliment. It could be, it could be like, like when we were kids and everything was like, swinging. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to cut so much of this out. Shall we move on, Nick? Swinging. Yes, let's move on. Um, any stats? Nope. So we've got no statistics for this week. Okay, that's great. Not really. Nothing of note. That's really mood. Maybe. So let's move on. Oh. So uh, let's do our lockdown update, Nick. So uh, obviously since the last time we recorded, things have changed a bit in the UK. And I think you said last time you could sort of, it felt like you could sort of see the end in sight and things have changed a bit for us over the last couple of weeks, haven't they? So is that helping you at all? No, I feel... I don't know. I, 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 because the thing is, is obviously a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today today in the pod, um, on top of just everything that's going on 
with not being able to get stuff completed and stuff like this. I'm just, I'm I, angry. I just don't feel good at all. I'm just, I'm just pissed off, to be honest with you. And just that everything, really. Um, and I just not, I'm not feeling any positivity. And it's just being kind of, I don't know, trapped. Just this sense of like, I, I, I suppose the last time we talked, I did this, I did see this kind of, moment on the horizon this opportunity to move and i just I, I i just don't see it now i just feel angry at things that are going on like really angry at things that are going on but just not finding the right ways to to kind of express it i mean normally we do this have a chat maybe have a drink or something like this and that would be one way in which we can do this it's just you know all my discussions with people now are artificial like through this kind of thing this just yeah just finding it a bit difficult really um to the point on friday just didn't want to see anyone didn't want to speak to anyone just wanted to just kind of like i had enough just turned off didn't even bother looking at like my phone and stuff like that i just wanted to just move away from from everything really and the weekend was a bit again it was a bit low over the weekend and i mean i feel a bit chirpier today but i'm still obviously uncomfortable the sense of angst with inside me yeah yeah sorry mate no that's all right i mean that started the pot off on a right happy note hasn't it mate cheers for that yeah maybe i'm mood maybe maybe your mood or maybe you're really not mood we don't know yet yeah yeah but one of the two i'm either really mood or, or i'm unmood or yeah moodless moodless <laughs> how's yours been mate yeah, so it's been very up and down. I've had some really good things and some really down moments over the last couple of weeks with regards to the lockdown. So a, a huge thing for me is the reopening in a very limited way of schools and nurseries. And that's been huge for me because as I have complained endlessly on this podcast and in every other com- conversation I've had over the last three months, um, I'm at home trying to do a full-time job in very unusual circumstances with two incredibly small children running around the house who can't even go out and do their normal fun things and that's just been um so i i had a uh, a meeting with a publisher last week uh, that i'm uh, supposed to be writing a book with and um he asked me how it was going and i said to be honest this has been the hardest three months of my professional career and it's because of all of those things and so anyway a big thing about this for me has been nursery reopening and my eldest returned to nursery just for a few mornings last week and that has been like something on the horizon for me for a while that oh that will just give us a tiny bit of breathing space and it did and that was nice and so i i got to like on on one day last week i took my wife out for a driving lesson which is frightening for a number of reasons uh, uh and also i got to go out for a nice long run on my own which was nice that helped me clear my head a bit although i'm in terrible shape mate. i mean i'm in awful condition so that was a bit bit depressing but also i realized that you know he only goes to nursery for sort of four or five hours at a time and uh it doesn't it doesn't free up that much time and it's not it hasn't sort of Mm. all the problems that i have with working from home haven't just gone away it has made things a bit easier and above everything i'm happy for him because he now gets to spend his mornings hanging out with other kids of his age and uh you know the nursery teachers who he loves and that's a really nice thing but that sort of the, the thing where there was the end was in sight the end is here now and it's it's still not a great deal better than it was so that was a bit of a downer um yeah. at work we had um uh, so we had the first of the assessment boards last week as well trying to navigate through the no detriment policy uh which is the first time you know I, I, there's a lot of uncertainty for students about how this functions and um that's you know that's reflected in academic staff now this has been really hard work for everybody involved in this and so i see this as a real i actually see it as a real positive because what i see is i mean literally a couple of hundred academics coming together to do their very very best in really trying circumstances to do to represent their students the very best they possibly can and what they are representing and reflecting is in most cases some remarkable work from students who have had to deal with circumstances that well no other student has had to face ever you know, no, no other student has ever had to finish their degree or finish the end of one of their years of their degree in lockdown. It's never happened before. And mm. 
the quality of the work that's been produced in the vast majority of cases has been really, really good. And so I take a great deal of pride in what the students have done and in what my colleagues have done to try and get us through that. But, I, I, you know, coupled with that is the recognition that this is bloody hard work and I'm exhausted. And, um, I, you know, we're not going to get a holiday. No. No, I, I, I mean, I... I share your your feelings, mate, with regards to just the hard work and effort that's put in by the students. Um, on the part of you saying that you you look awful, I, I, I'd also agree, mate. I didn't say I look awful. I said oh, I'm sorry. in bad shape. Uh, I, I, I would say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll shut up. What are we going to move on to talk about first, Nick? The plan was originally before you stood me up on Friday night was that we were gonna we were gonna do this on a Friday night and have a drink together while we did it. So, contrary to some expectations, we don't normally drink alcohol while recording the pod, and we're not now. Uh, but we were gonna do it on Friday night, and the reason we were going to do that then was that we could reflect on uh, the series of events from last week. It would have been the day after the anniversary. Um, so the uh, it was the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, um, which, I, I mean, I assume that our listeners know all about that, so I probably don't need to go into the details about what that actually means. Um, but usually there is a very large candlelit vigil in Hong Kong about this uh, to mark that anniversary. And this year it was banned by the Hong Kong authorities, ostensibly because of the coronavirus outbreak, um, which makes sense on one level. I, I mean, there's, you know, we, I'm sure we will at some point touch on uh, the various demonstrations and gatherings around the rest of the world, um, which are happening during this outbreak. And that it adds an extra dimension to that debate, certainly. So... There is, there is certainly a, there's certainly a discussion to be had about that. Um, but of course, the timing of this was it coincided with the passing of the security law, which we mentioned in the last podcast, which fundamentally changes the nature of Hong Kong's ability to rule itself and the whole idea of freedom of expression in that territory. Um, I mean, the, the classic. So the, they think the law that was actually passed and put pushed through. Hong Kong's legislature on June the fourth was about the um, about the anthem going through. So that the idea that you you can no longer disrespect the Chinese national anthem in Hong Kong, but I mean the, the whole concept of disrespect is so poorly defined that I mean just failing to sing it properly could be that. So, but also not singing it at the right time. I mean, all of these things could be willfully misinterpreted as disrespecting the Chinese national anthem and yeah and also the idea that you don't have the freedom to disrespect a national anthem is problematic now I can see why disrespecting national anthems can be offensive to some people and it's not something that necessarily should be done lightly or just for fun but if people need to make a serious point they have to be free to do that but other people can be free to disagree with them and challenge them about what they're doing but they have to be free to have that choice. Otherwise, I mean, there is no such thing as freedom of expression. And that's, you know, that amongst a raft of other measures was one of the things pushed through on June the 4th in Hong Kong itself. Um, but what we did see in Hong Kong was quite a large vigil of mostly young people, people who clearly, well, the vast majority of them, were not alive when the Tiananmen Square massacre happened. And yet they were out to mark that anniversary in a way that people in the rest of China are not able to. Now, we could raise a question about how many would choose to if they could, but what we know is they can't even if they want to, certainly not in that public fashion. So it was quite, um, it was quite emotional, I think, to see the courage and bravery again, again, of the young people of Hong Kong out making their point in the face of an oppressive regime that is actively working to take away the freedoms that they have and with sort of little prospect of being able to successfully push back on that what do you want to say nick um i mean yeah i mean everything that you have said um but you know one of the things that i thought was 
particularly interesting was the recent comments made by Jiang Xiaoming, the deputy director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, who referred to the imposing of the law as like installing an antivirus software. And I think that's particularly telling the fact that he would use that as an analogy and linking the fact that protest or disobedience is some form of virus and particularly as we're in a period of global pandemic and our needs to eradicate viruses is is particularly concerning um, and to be saying it around such a period within their own history um, and I find this one of the just kind of this seems to be just it's the the the, the, the words keep you know um reverberating around my head about you know this linking to the you know any kind of disobedience or against this law would be a form of a virus and it's there to essentially remove it um yeah so that's kind of the thing that's kind of stood out for me most about this um we obviously a fairly significant juncture i would say in the way in which we divide periods of time right so we always would say that there are significant events that ultimately change the direction that we live our lives and the way in which that um governance um is performed right i you know we may look back at september 11th as as a change right as a, a, a change in the way in which um nations act and respond to each other and i i really would argue that we're we're seeing a very significant period 2020 is a significant period it's not just about the pandemic and just the lockdown it's not just about hong kong i mean i find this really really hard to kind of watch at the moment the situation that's going on in the united states um and you know we, we we're getting the same kind of messages coming through social media about you know we must stand with Hong Kong while simultaneously not doing anything themselves. You know, uh, Rubio would be one example of that. I actually left him a personal tweet about this when he was sharing um, images of uh, Tiananmen Square and saying that we must remember. I was like, you know, what what are you doing about the situation in? your own country i mean i'm just these are things that are angering me mate to be quite honest with you this situation in hong kong it was like it was like this moment of reflection where we should be looking at this and not only were people being denied to perform the the, the, the vigil um and it was so heartwarming to see so many people out on the streets for this um but actually it kind of passed most global press i mean there were a few articles that were you know at least pay lip service to it but there wasn't really any intense discussion on this right um and i just feel that everything is just providing a kind of perfect moment really for the chinese authorities to begin start erasing much of this from their history do you feel like the world is giving up or has given up on hong kong do you think it's sort of uh, abandoned the idea of defending Hong Kong's autonomy? I think it's I think it's accepted the fact that it has. I think the United States moving to remove the special measures towards Hong Kong is a signal that has accepted it. It doesn't necessarily agree with it. Um, I it's like one of those things. Okay, there's a there's a kind of saying, isn't there, that. Um, I mean, it's often used in logical fallacy arguments where you you believe that there is a a, a a greater agreement between the particular argument because the people that you engage with all have the same views, right? I can't remember. There is actually a particular term for that. Um, but I, I think it's the case of like, for the people who I know, it's, I would look at this on the surface and say, I think I, I don't think people have given up on Hong Kong, but that's largely to do with the fact that the majority of people I know would be in strong support for the people of Hong Kong. Um, I think there are obviously particular locations that have more vested interest in protecting Hong Kong. So obviously you get a lot of this coming out 
from from the Taiwanese government, for example, though I I feel that they need to be cautious with the way in which they handle that anyway, um, particularly as the fact that they don't have laws to protect refugees or asylum. And I think that if you're going to start opening up borders to let people from Hong Kong come in, but you don't have a legal basis, it kind of undermines your argument of autonomy and independence. And so, yeah, well, I wanted to come in. Um, firstly, echo chamber. I think that's the phrase you're looking for, right? right. That, okay, I think so. Yeah, because yeah. that, that's it, sort of that's one right. of the things about uh, like in the run up to the Brexit campaign is people just could not understand how there was anybody out there who thought differently to them, and it's just because your social media is sort of all designed to tell you stuff you agree with. Um, but you, so you mentioned uh, we were talking about responses and whether or not the world has given up, um, and you mentioned refugees and asylum seekers. And I th here is kind of an interesting thing I think that happened that I, I definitely think that we should mention because it's something that I said on the last pod, which was about the moral responsibility that this country, the United Kingdom, has to the people of Hong Kong and that they should, this country should now stand up and do what it failed to do just prior to 1997. Now, at some point, we could dissect whether or not the UK really <coughs> did have to, in inverted commas, hand back Hong Kong, because I know you made the point that Hong Kong was never actually ruled by the People's Republic before 1997. Um, but we could argue about whether it actually had to hand it back. But when deciding that it did, or it was going to hand this territory over to the People's Republic of China, there were, what, at that time, like six million people, was it, in Hong Kong, who this country had a moral responsibility to. And the that responsibility was not, it was not fulfilled, in my opinion. Now, I never expected a Conservative government led by the likes of Boris Johnson, who has made his recent career out of uh, a fairly right-wing, anti-immigration, isolationist stance. I never expected them to be the people who might actually begin to step up to that plate. But that's what has happened in the last couple of weeks. There's a million things that I would criticise this government for. Um, but the announcement that there is there are going to be new... So the, the announcement is that um, the uh, British overseas passport holders, um, of which there are several hundred thousand in Hong Kong, and another two and a half million eligible to get them, they'll have their right to stay in the UK extended from six months to 12 months, which will be renewable each year. And this will be a path... It's not, it's not immediate citizenship, but it will be a path towards citizenship for all of those people. And the British government has also convened a meeting with uh, a number of allies, Australia, United States, Canada among them, to talk about countries that could take uh, large numbers of people from Hong Kong who will need to get out. Now, there's a couple of... There's a couple of huge things here. I mean, the first is that that represents the biggest shift in... British immigration policy, uh, I mean, certainly certainly since free movement in the EU was allowed. Um, and it, it's a kind of change that I really could not have predicted coming out of a government such as this. And it does begin, only begin, in my opinion, to address this historic wrongdoing against the people of Hong Kong. But it also indicates that the, the British government and those other governments that we just mentioned they seem to recognise or they seem to accept that this is over now. Hong Kong's special status is gone. And we, I mean, we said on the last pod that if this law goes through, which, you know, we fully expected it would and now it has, Hong Kong becomes very, diff very not different, not fundamentally different from Shanghai, Beijing, any of the other major well-developed cities in mainland China where, you know, people have... A, a fair amount of uh, individual freedom within particular parameters. And those parameters very are very restrictive about political expression um, and freedom of assembly, which are fundamental to Hong Kong identity. So it seems like there's been an acceptance outside of Hong Kong. The people on the streets in Hong Kong don't look like they've accepted it to me. But outside of Hong Kong, it looks like there is an acceptance that this is the end of that special situation for Hong Kong. And that's that fills me with sadness, but I 
there is that little silver lining that uh, I'm pleased at least to see Western governments doing at least something to offer people a way out. That should by no means diminish the choice that those people of Hong Kong will have to make because whilst I'm sure some of them will be pleased that there is somewhere they can go where they will be able to live and work freely, Hong Kong's their home. That's that's their home and they will be forced out of their home by this. And that's that I mean that's not anything to celebrate for anyone. No. Um and as I I think I we I discussed in either our last pod or a previous one, I mean the British National Overseas Passport of which um the people could that people were able to apply for from 1997 um it, it, i mean in a sense not giving full citizenship at the that time was um was rather despicable anyway and so giving them these kind of second class passports um not you know giving them full entitlement to what everyone else enjoys i think it has always been a reminder to the british government of what it failed to do for the people of Hong Kong back then. And you're right. I mean, this is, these are at least positive voices coming from this. I mean, I yet to see how, how this is going to be implemented and I hope it is, but I mean, as with anything else, the promises that were made by, um, you know, the promises that were made by about helping businesses through the COVID-19 hasn't always kind of materialized and we, ourselves were always like, oh, I mean, these are positive measures. You know, it was like a, a Labour manifesto within a Conservative government, but it hasn't really materialised in the way in which that we were expecting it to. And I just hope that this isn't another one of those occasions, you know, that it doesn't come with additional restrictions on the types of, you know, on, you know, on how, you know, the, you know, the, the types of, um, you know, whether people are working or what other kinds of restrictions are being put well, in place if, on this. Well, if we take the government announcement at face value, and I completely understand why we might not, uh, but if we did, then uh, those those sorts of restrictions would not would not be in place. Uh, but yeah. you know, I guess we have to see how it pans out. And of course, the other thing to take into account is I mentioned that several hundred thousand people have this kind of passport already, and around another two and a half million would be eligible for it. That's still going to leave five million people in Hong Kong with no way out. Yeah, and often it was a hate. I mean, often it was the place of. I mean, this was the place where where the supporters of Tiananmen Square in nineteen eighty nine, where many of them moved to. Same with those escaping the Cultural Revolution. I mean, ha, I mean, it, you know, China. China has a vendetta against the ill doings it's felt towards itself that go back over one hundred and fifty years. Right. I mean. Um, and so, you know, what's to say that, you know, that there isn't a, a a list of people that they are going to want to re-educate, mm. right, um, within Hong Kong that come from that? Uh, I mean, yes, I, find, I just find it a, just a very, very frightening did you see the, situation. Did you see the response from the government spokesman in China when there was um, the, when the British government made this announcement? Did, did you see the response to that? I can't remember the exact words that were used. But um, it, it was along the lines of Britain should stop interfering in China's internal affairs. And if Britain followed through with this plan, China would respond appropriately. And I thought, I mean, just just from an, just from an international relations perspective, this is kind of interesting because what Britain is doing there is offering is offering citizenship to a group of people so that they can live within the territory of the United Kingdom uh, under UK laws. Is that, even if you accept unquestioningly about Chinese sovereignty over Hong Kong, and that, that's a different conversation, let's put that to one side just for a second. If you accept that, is it interfering in another country's sovereign matters to allow their citizens to come and live in the UK and to, to make permanent residence here? Is that interference? I suppose from, I mean, again, we are arguing from their perspective, which we don't sit ourselves. But um, I would say it's because you are selecting a group of people that they would be considered to be almost those that the law is preventing. So the, the, the very act of wanting to do this in these circumstances are fits within the remit of that particular law, isn't mm -hmm. it? Right. So... 
if 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 honestly if if disrespecting the national anthem is a part of this particular law is that to to revoke your citizenship on the basis of that is the same thing mm. right yeah um i suppose that's the angle of which that they're taking yeah but i could see that i was i was just really intrigued by the idea that they would sort of they would respond appropriately and i thought i mean what while well, i take british that's people. what's the equivalent response <laughs> to, to okay. invite all the welsh to go and live in beijing i mean <laughs> yeah would you would you take chinese citizenship if you could have it no i'm not even allowed to visit are you not even allowed to visit no i tried to get a visa from hong kong didn't i and then it was revoked uh, not, not revoked, was it? Refused. Refused. Yeah, serves yeah. you right. I wouldn't give you a visa either, mate, if I had a country. A very interesting part of this conversation is the dilemma that this country is facing in with its Brexit negotiations. That is the thing that I think that China would hold are post-Brexit trade talks. That leaves us only realistically with the United States, right? Chlorinated chicken, mate. Can't wait. It, it makes it taste better. I've eaten chicken, but to be fair, right? I mean, okay, I I wouldn't ever opt to eat chlorinated chicken. But if that's all they have in the United States, I mean, I've eat I've eaten chicken in the United right. States. Right. Okay. There is really okay. So there is a massive misunderstanding about the chlorinated chicken argument, right? Because right, chlorine is in your swimming pool, mate. Like you know, obviously, it is a kind of bleach. It's not something you should be drinking. Obviously, unless you've got coronavirus, then it'll cure you, apparently. Um, but yeah. so it, it's not something that you want to be consuming vast amounts of. You're not by eating chlorinated chicken. It's not actually about human safety. Why do you need to chlorinate your chicken? You need to chlorinate your chicken because the chickens are kept in such horrific circumstances that they're nowhere near clean and there's too much bacteria and disease going around. So you use chlor use chlorine to clean that off so that they are fit for human consumption. Oh, okay. It's so a, it's basically shitty chicken. It's about animal rights. And there is something weird about trying to defend the rights of animals that you've bred specifically to kill so you can eat. But there is there is an important point there. Yeah, no, I no, I okay, okay. I mean, I I was part of that misunderstanding of that core argument. I thought because I've eaten chicken in the United States, and I mean, I couldn't tell the difference, right? Ah, but were you were you in a swimming pool cafe at the time? Let's move on. Let's not talk about Brexit, okay? Do you, do you remember Brexit? Do you remember we had like like four years of arguing about Brexit and we were just like, oh, for heaven's sake. I miss it. Can you just move on? Can we finally just deal with this and move on and have something else to talk about in the news? My God, I'd give my right arm for the news to be about chuffing Brexit for once in a while. So you want to talk about what happened in Kaohsiung this week? Right, okay. So really quite important things are going uh, that went on. There was a, a vote to recall the Kaohsiung mayor. Now, for those who um, have been following it in some ways, um, Han Yu was the former KMT presidential candidate who lost in January to Tsai Ing-wen. Um, there was a kind of a lot of conversations that were that were ongoing um, uh, around the time of the, ele the election campaign about him failing to do his duties as the mayor of Kaohsiung. Now, um, if you can remember going back some time now that there, there were some local elections in Taiwan and we had a group of people came up and we had like a round table discussion. Do you remember? Yes. Because you were involved in that as well. Um, and so this was where we really saw a, um, a result where the Taiwan's local elections were in many ways victims of the spread of misinformation and influence right that was coming from china and we saw this most prominently within kaohsiung which is like i mean i think it's now taiwan's third largest city but definitely the largest in the south um and so we saw a significant change from the the current dpp government which has essentially been um, so it's like the Wisconsin, really, of Taiwan, this area which had been within a progressive government for for significant amounts of times. And then we suddenly see a switch um, to the KMT um, with the election of um, a populist leader, Han Guoyu. Um, and so, uh, so essentially people were growing unhappy over the fact that he hasn't essentially been there. And so there was a vote to recall him. Now, this is the first time that this has happened um, in Taiwan's 
political history whereby a person has been removed as mayor. Now, um, in order for this to happen, a quarter, so there's 2.3, to give a bit of a wider picture, 2.3 million eligible voters within the Gaussian area. Um, in order for this to have passed, a quarter must vote in favour, right? Um, so, uh, so people went to the ballot box, 97.4% were in favour for removing him, which is significant, Sorry, just say that, right? just say that percentage again. 97.4%. 97.4% voted in favour to have him removed I mean, that's, as the mayor. That's an astonishing figure, isn't it? It, it really is. It's 42.14% turnout. So um, that's really quite significant. Obviously, there's been lots of things going on, you know, being labelled um, towards the DPP government. But this, I think, is a massive reaction to Beijing. Um, Hang Yu was known to favour closer ties with China. I think this this is a massive, massive wake up call for the KMT party. And we've spoken, we spoke about this when we had our pod around the elections. And I said that, you know, that the KMT now needs to move towards the centre. Um, and clearly um, favouring closer ties with China is not the right way. Um, so this is a resounding victory to the DPP. I mean, this will begin to consolidate its rule. So obviously there will be another mayor election, I assume, that will follow from this. And I think with that kind of uh, figures, I mean, it looks that we would see a return to DPP rule. Um, but this is, this is troubled waters, really, for, for the KMT. Um, but I do think that in this era of misinformation and the way in which that political influence is picked up through social media, I do think that this is a, a resounding victory for all those that are campaigning against populism. What does the KMT do? So, I mean, what does the KMT do about this? Like you say, this is a great big wake up call for the KMT. But I mean... <laughs> Can it just make a complete about face on its China policy at this point in time? Is is there is there space in the political debate of Taiwan to do that? Very interesting question. Um, I mean, it has it has to. I mean, both the DPP and the KMT have always been centrist parties. I mean, that's where the status quo sits, isn't it? It sits at the centre, right? Um, and we only really, you know, um. Arguably, we've seen the DPP in the past had deviated away from that centre. Um, it did so under Trenshebien, and we see it returning more to the centre under Taiwan. Um, and I think that's what we have. Um, but the KMT obviously has over its past two since Mindjol really has shifted away. The problem is, is that the KMT invested in so much so much to get Ma elected that they never really thought about what would happen after he left. Um, and this is just an identity crisis. I mean, it is a significant identity crisis for the party. Um, I think the only way to recover from this is is to search and look for the middle ground. Um, and in, in many ways, we are starting to see this. We're starting to see this on certain, um, you know, looking for young conservatives. And this is, you know, maybe this is how the future would would be in the case of Taiwan is that they move away from, you know, being two parties that are issue based parties, right? China needs to be, I think the future for the KMT is for China not to be the base of the issue, I mean, you know, not to be the issue of the party, but rather to look on maybe conservative values or to work and function as a traditional in the sense of a right left wing spectrum party to look at that center right ground um and perhaps that's the the kind of the future for it um you know um and to relook i mean the election of johnny chang the younger you know it's it was really quite as a kmt chairman which was really quite clear that it was done to in a bid to reform the party um and perhaps that is that is the future for the KMT, is to label itself more as a traditional, you know, centre-right party, um, work on family values, this type of thing, um, economy. Um, so we've got 
there's a couple more things I think we do want to talk about. Um, it's difficult for us to record a podcast right now without at least mentioning the scenes we've seen across the United States and in our own country here in the UK over the last few days um, with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, now, I mean, this isn't directly related to the Asia-Pacific, uh, and this podcast is supposed to be about the Asia-Pacific, so I think we need to talk about the Asia-Pacific response. But it's an important thing for both you and I, and uh, that might sound odd to some people listening to two white, uh, privileged males talking, um, but for us, this is something that matters an awful lot. Um, and uh, it's probably important. It is important. That it's important that everybody speaks, so we should also speak. And I know that this is one of the things that affected you over the last week, seeing the response. Um, I mean, there are so many contradictory feelings. You see the there's so much positivity and so much energy in the protest movement that we've seen across the world. Uh, and that that gives me hope and optimism. You posted something on Facebook about the response from our own current and former students, which I thought really hit the mark because it, it also filled me with a weird sense of pride to see those people standing up Engaging. and making a noise. Engaging, yeah. but And and being willing to put themselves out there. Um, and it sort of makes me hopeful that the, the you know, to quote Deng Xiaoping, that the next generation will be wiser. And maybe they are. Maybe they're going to make the difference that our generation didn't manage to. Um, so we watched, uh, yeah, as we record, yesterday, um, you will have seen the statue of Edward Colston being dragged yeah. down in Bristol. And, I, I mean, I can't believe some of the reactions to that. People talking, I mean... I mean, that man is responsible for probably 80,000 deaths. He was a, He's a slave trader. How, I mean, how has it taken an angry mob to drag that bloody statue down? The year is 2020. How on earth has it got to this point where people have to go and drag that statue down? It's, it's absurd that they would need to do that. And yet you have people calling for those that dragged it down to be to be prosecuted it's it's insane the response to the protests themselves about people objecting to you know this is going to cause a second wave and yet those same objections didn't seem anywhere when we had the celebrations for ve day a couple of weeks ago when you know that was all the, right all the people on the beaches the people on the beach now I mean, we have to be fair not everybody was on the beach i mean i wasn't on the bloody beach like not everybody was on the beaches and so, there, you know, there are people, I mean, we've talked about how difficult this lockdown is for lots of people. It's been hard for us, it's been harder for other people. And so I understand why people are reluctant to see the gains, the small gains that we've had lost. But there's, there's something bigger happening. Um, I agree. Anyway, we wanted, to, um, we wanted to mention the response in the Asia-Pacific. And I thought an interesting thing that happened uh, was obviously there is this ludicrous response and there are so many good rebuttals to this that we don't even need to give it. But when people quote Black Lives Matter and you get this ludicrous response of all lives matter as, 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 if, as if saying Black Lives Matter is in any way a suggestion that other lives don't matter. It, Black Lives Matter means that all lives matter. That, that's the whole point. And if you argue against that, well, you just, you, you're saying they don't and it's idiotic. Anyway. There are plenty of idiots out there. And uh, when people have uh, responded with, there was a hashtag that came out from white supremacists, a hashtag white lives matter. Um, what was amazing, I thought, was uh, K-pop fans out of Korea and across, not just in Korea, across the rest of the world. There's kind of like a, a unity amongst K-pop fans and uh, which stretches across, um, across races, across cultures, across languages. And um, they sort of hijacked that hashtag of white lives matter just to just to send out like clips of k-pop music and just to drown out the white supremacists which i thought it, it was an, it's an interesting piece of online activism and i i quite liked it um i, I know you got a view 
um, I, I do, but this is really quite hard. Um, because I, all right, I, what I'm about to say, I doesn't, I don't want to, I kind of undermine the positivity from people in their response. And however I, however it comes out, I do not want it to be seen in that particular way because I do think it is important for people to say something right particularly when we are frequently reminded that to be silent is to be complicit right but I do think that there needs to be a greater awareness of what is referred to as performative allyship right um, so if we can understand what allyship is in this regards is an ally someone from a non-marginalized group privilege using that to advocate for a marginalized group so you transfer the benefit of your privilege to those who lack it right but performative allyship um, is when the same kind of like non-marginalized group support the solidarity um, with the marginalized group that isn't always helpful but uh, um, I hope I'm making sense at the moment. So it's this idea that if you, so if you were to just simply hashtag, so I don't know, hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag whatever, right? Um, you've kind of done your bit, right? And then you've publicly declared your stand against racism and then you just kind of give it a tick and then you move on with the other things. So we saw saw this in some ways people you know we saw this in instagram and stuff like that with the kind of the the blacking out of the picture then obviously a few hours later returns back to you know with food now i'm not saying that all people are doing this but it's to be aware that this is i think there's certain things that people need to believe they need to just think about right um so if it's the so the problem here that is that if you were to simply just say an image or something and then you no longer engage with it, you have, I mean, it's something you engage with, you have to continue engage with it, right? Uh, it's really quite hard because I don't necessarily have the right answers to how to act. So I suppose is to, you know, to be more aware, informing yourself about this. So not virtue signaling. I mean, there's plenty of stuff. I mean, if any, I mean, if any of our listeners, I'm not really because I don't want to come across as being somebody professing here. But I mean, there is a lot of stuff which you can do in terms of reading, um, you know, to read up about this, but not necessarily virtue signal to say that that is what you're doing, but just to be doing it. Because there's a part of me that feels that me simply saying this is also, does that make sense? So like me saying, oh, you know, I read up all about it um, and I shouldn't really publicly declare that I do that because public declaring that doing that is virtue sick. Um, and so but me having me having this conversation with you is also because our, the, the one of the major reasons of our pod is for it to be personal, personal conversation between you and I that's being recorded. But whilst at the same yeah. time, so this is really quite difficult. So I suppose informing yourself um this is not just simply understanding like oh you know these neo-nazis and these are on one side and then you know the brutal police on one side and then on the other side we have like everybody else but it's to actually understand the mechanisms within our society that perpetuates this degree of racism in the first place to be aware of your own bias to engage with those own biases um calling out people in real life when you do hear it so you know that gammon face relative that starts harping on about how immigrants are taking their jobs over a Christmas did actually call them out for it rather than I mean the, I mean these are this <laughs> is really it's so hard because it's one of those particular topics that is such a really difficult thing to do because but I just feel that the whole thing about the when it came out with the k-pop just felt to me at the time yes you're right to make a stand but it felt so performative because it hasn't really done anything. It's not achieved anything and it's gone. It's stopped. They just stood out. It's like, okay, so I'm a K-pop fan. I mean, this is because obviously we have a lot of K-pop fans of things. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't say anything. I just think that there needs to be a greater engagement with it. I hope I've said so, Thank you. I could see you torturing yourself over how to word this because there are, there are so many contradictory feelings about it. Um, I, I guess what I would say, I, I totally understand a bit about the performative allyship um, and that 
it is something to be aware of, both in terms of observing other people doing it and of engaging in it yourself. You know, there's we could be accused of that. Like you just said, we could be accused of that doing this right now, putting out a podcast saying this, and then, well, what else are you doing? But the way I saw that was, um, I know you're not saying this, but it would be unfair to criticise K-pop fans for having not successfully removed systemic racism across the world, right, by using the hashtag that they did. I know that that's not what you're doing, but it would be unfair to criticise them for that. So when you say that, you know, it was there and then it's gone, well, I mean, that will be true of what we're saying right Right, now on this podcast. Right, exactly. So, right. But that doesn't mean that this is an empty gesture. It doesn't mean that these are empty words. And there will be some people who use that hashtag just because other people were doing it and they probably didn't think it through. There'll be other people who didn't understand it to begin with, who were influenced by what was happening and then engaged with it and educated themselves and learned about it and become genuine allies. And there'll be still more who were and remain committed allies in this fight who tried to achieve something and did, even if it is a small victory at a small piece of time. But what it will have done is sent a message of solidarity to black K-pop fans, K-pop fans of colour across the rest of the world, that there, there is a level of solidarity there. And that in itself can be reinforcing and strengthening for movements across the globe. This will not be fixed by one person or one generation or one nationality. It takes something much, much bigger and more complex than that and so no one is suggesting that k-pop fans could solve this problem but they many of them managed to contribute to a message which is important and i fundamentally a hundred percent agree with you right i a hundred percent agree with you I don't, I don't even want to say, but there is still this itchiness. I mean, this is this is exactly what, I mean, we end up having, I'm glad that we are having this conversation on Monday because this is the thing that's been tearing me apart inside my head since what, really since like kind of like Tuesday, Wednesday. And it's just been going on all week about this because it's just how, because I'm aware that activism, the purpose of activism is to create change, right? That's the point of activism. And that, it can't what we are asking for change what we're seeking for change just simply cannot begin and end with a hashtag and i because the actual systemic racism that exists within our society doesn't give a shit about our outrage and our hashtags right so it's to me there has to be something where we are aware of what we are doing but are prepared to take it to the next step where unmessy conversations become the thing that we need to do to address the root causes within we think um and i'm fully aware that yes people will and they will do these things and they don't and that's why i wanted to say you know that i just I think it commendable. I think it's so important that people are engaging with these things. But I just think that we just need to reflect on what it is that we're doing and how can we best take it to the next stage. So we don't disagree, and I don't. I I'm not sure we should pursue this no. anymore because because we don't. We're not arguing. We and this, but also we are doing what what yeah. we said, which is. We're engaging with the conversation. Right. We're a we're a tiny part of this huge conversation, yeah. and we can't we can't and should not be anything more than a tiny tiny part of no. it. But we shouldn't be anything less either. You're absolutely right. But you is something that you did say in our kind of warm ups to doing this, and I do think this is quite important. Is the situation with regards to BTS because I do think the BTS has taken this past that step within the hashtag. What I told you just before we started recording was about BTS. Well, I, I need to say it on recording, otherwise it doesn't, <laughs> get, it doesn't make it into the pod. They don't hear the stuff we say before we press record, right? Uh, is that BTS donated a million dollars? to Black Lives Matter, the movement. Now, what I think is probably more important than that is that BTS fans ran with that and organised their own campaign to match the million. So they raised their own funds and within 24 hours had made the million dollars. And that that tells you that there are people engaging with K-pop as part of this community, this identity, showing that solidarity. Now, 
and here's the, here's the, here's why I think actually that I don't think that's necessarily much more. It, I, I can see why it's significant, why it is. It's literally about people putting their money where their mouth is. But this isn't just about money, right? So yeah, the money matters because it can be used to make difference and to, uh, to provide support where it's needed. But being part of that conversation, being willing to stand up and be part of that conversation is the thing that will eventually make the difference. So it, yes, it's, it is notable and commendable and real action. But I think the hashtag campaign was that as well. I, I don't and I don't disagree. So my computer just warned me that my computer is running out of space. <laughs> so for that reason alone, shall we move on? Yeah, okay, that's good. I'm glad to move on actually, because that was fairly difficult. Still is in my head. I know, but that's why it matters. And why we're academics, mate, because we need to have these internal battles. Yeah, no, I'm an academic for the pension, mate. That was the only reason I went into it. <laughs> uh, anyway, do we have anything light to talk about, like uh, an odd... We do have something light to talk about. Now, Nick, I, I mentioned this to you previously. I'm going to see if I could play it. So first of all, maybe I should explain. This is our Pacific Oddity of the Week. Uh, so this week, we are going to Japan. Um, now, this actually didn't happen very recently, um, but it... Oh, so, so it's an old, not a new. It's not really an old, though. So, it, I mean, it, it literally just happened as we recorded the last pod. Oh, okay. Oh, then we have um, to do it. But but also, it, it, the storm around, it didn't emerge until uh, sort of the last five or six days. Um, so, it was, so it was on May the 21st. Uh, that this went out. It was a segment on um, Breakfast Time TV in Japan on TBS. Um, and they aired a segment um, examining a theory about why Japan has a lower incidence of coronavirus than Western countries. I have to say, it completely ignores the fact that so does everywhere else in East Asia um, and focuses entirely on the difference between Japan and the West, which in itself is quite interesting. Um, but this theory is that um, the way Japanese is pronounced and the way that English is pronounced, and again, Western countries are all speaking English in this. Um, so the way that pronunciation is in Japan, in, sorry, the way that Japanese pronunciation is, the way that English pronunciation is, uh, it explains the difference. Now, this because of the, uh, the extra emphasis put on Particularly, so I'm using the letter P at several of the beginning of those words, and that's the example that they focus on. So I'm going to see if I can play this. They did this experiment where they used the sentence, this is a pen in both Japanese and English. And uh, to demonstrate how much further air was sent using the English version of this pronunciation, they hung a tissue in front of the mouth of the lady speaking <laughs> and, when, and when she says pen in english where she uh really really i mean i'm gonna play it in a second where she really really overemphasizes the per then the um the tissue flies away demonstrating that obviously the stuff that's coming out of her mouth is going a much greater distance and this is an explanation for why there's so much more uh, transmission of coronavirus in English-speaking countries than uh, in Japan. Of course, as I say, it, I mean, it, it completely ignores other other languages. Right, I'm going to play it. So let's see, hopefully this will work and hopefully we're not in breach of any copyright or at least any copyright that anyone who's listening will care about. This is a pen. So, what do you think, Nick? <laughs> Seems legit, mate. I mean, I don't watch Japanese breakfast TV, but this this segment, I don't think it's intended to be a particularly scientific experiment, but it is a ridiculous idea. Um, I think I should also point out that the the most of the ridicule for this has come out of Japan. And so there's there's plenty of Japanese Twitter users who've produced their own kind of amusing videos making fun of the way that they've done this. Um, it's actually, it's quite funny. So uh, what do you reckon? Do you reckon that's, um, 
you reckon that's an explanation for why we've all got COVID? I think it's definitely a reason why we should all wear masks. Well, at least we should stop telling everybody we've got a pen in our hands as we're yeah. walking around the streets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe that's what we need to change. Just stop telling yeah. people that we have a pen. That's that's the problem. If you're sitting on the train and somebody is holding some kind of writing implement in their hand, do not say to them, what is that? Because they will say, this is a pen, and then yeah. you'll get coronavirus. And maybe we shouldn't pronounce our thing so carefully. We should enunciate. Enunciate, darling. Enunciate. That's the problem. We need to just, we need to be more mood or not mood. Are we, let's finish. All right. Well, this has been fun. Let's do it again sometime. We just might.